Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, I speak with writer and editor Rebecca May Johnson. Rebecca publishes the newsletter Dinner Document by Rebecca May Johnson and is the author of the book Small Fires, an Epic in the Kitchen. Small Fires blew me away when I first read it. It's really unlike any other food book I've ever read. It's part memoir, part manifesto, part poetry. And if you follow along, you might be familiar because I've quoted it several times in the newsletter. It was such a pleasure to speak with Rebecca in person, exploring what it means to cook and why we cook. We discussed gender roles in the kitchen and how women especially are pressured into a performance of joy where cooking is viewed as an act of love instead of real work that takes a massive amount of time and skill. Rebecca describes how recipes can be valuable forms of information and knowledge. In her book, she elevates the domestic to the level of an epic, as she says, which I love because cooking is indeed a journey and there's so much we can learn in the kitchen, not only about food itself, but also about other people and about ourselves. Stay tuned to the end because Rebecca describes some recipes she's been making lately and I've included links in the show notes to some of the dishes she describes, including a blueberry custard tart that I am dying to make. As always, if this work resonates with you, you can support it by rating it on your podcast app or sharing it with friends. You can leave a comment. All these things go a long way in supporting the podcast. You can also become a subscriber to the Mind, Body, Spirit food newsletter where I share weekly recipes as well as my thoughts and tips on bringing more presence, ease, joy, and freedom into the kitchen. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Well, hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the show. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me on. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. I am fairly obsessed with your book, Small Fires. (laughs) When I find a book I love, I'm not very reverential about it. I go in there with a pen and I underline and I make notes and your book is like filled with (laughs) underline notes, all the things. So thank you for writing it because it's unlike any other food book I've ever read. And I can't wait to dive into that. But before we get started, I'm going to start by asking you the first question I ask all of my guests. And that is, what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? Hmm, Cultural upbringing. Yeah, I guess I am a middle-class white British person, if that's what you mean by culture. (laughs) I grew up in a family where my mom did most of the cooking. In fact, my dad very rarely cooks. And yeah, her influences are broadly European as a cook, although she does make very good British puddings. She was a French Mm -hmm. and Spanish teacher, so she'd spent time in Europe and much of the books that she enjoyed reading, or she enjoys reading, she's still alive, (laughs) are British cooks who have spent time in Europe, discovered European cooking, such as Elizabeth David, who's a Mm well-known mid-century English food writer. And also she loves Claudia Roden, who originally grew up in Egypt, but she's of Jewish heritage and 
famously, perhaps, I don't know if, how well known it is in the US, but her book of Jewish food is absolutely incredible. But her book of Middle Eastern cooking is the one that my mum has cooked from a lot. So yeah, I grew up surrounded by my mum's cooking and she takes influences from fairly far and wide, along with a good dose of British puddings, such as like, I don't know if you have like steamed syrup sponges and stuff in the US. And I don't have much of that, although I love those things and I wish there was more, but there's not. You have a very good pie culture though. Pie is actually my very favorite thing to make. I grew up in the Midwest here in the US and pie is just my favorite food. So it sounds like food was a big part of your upbringing. I mean, your mother cooked a lot. She explored different recipes or I guess this is leading me to the question, like how did you develop a passion for food and cooking? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that the kitchen was the big space in which my mother expressed herself and was most at home, the fact that that was the kitchen had a big impact on me. She didn't exactly teach me how to cook as such. She didn't sort of sit me down and take me through her repertoire, but her enthusiasm wore off on me. And we know there was a few things that I made and learned from her, which gave me a somewhat naive confidence when I left home to go to study in London when I was 18. And I think also because I saw her role, she did so much cooking. And that's how I made a space for myself in the kind of new, unfamiliar social situation of living in student halls with lots of other people and then lots and lots Mm. of other houses in London, renting with different people and that kind of thing. So cooking was how I kind of navigated those social situations with fairly scant skills and knowledge at that time. So yeah, her influence definitely rubbed off on me. And how did this book come about? Yeah, gosh, it is an unusual book, I guess. And its genesis is really reflective of how I spent the sort of 15 years prior to its publication, I guess, going to university. And It's a sort of collection of lots of different practices from my life. So academic practice, you know, I did a PhD in German poetry, which took sort of six years. The poetry that I wrote about was a modern rewriting of the Odyssey by a German poet, and it's a feminist rewriting. And her rewriting focuses on women's labor, particularly. Mm. And so when I was working on that, that got me thinking critically about women's labor and also its potential for genius and all sorts of interesting ways of thinking that aren't necessarily centered in culture that I hadn't seen being centered in the universities that I'd been studying in. So there's that aspect of it. And then I started a recipe blog when I was doing my PhD and I was a bit depressed doing my PhD, struggling as many people do. But then the kind of combination of those two things, the sort of critical thinking and then the cooking, Over time, they began to get into dialogue and I developed other sorts of practices, for example, and this is, I guess, pretty unusual. I got invited to translate a short story by an Austrian writer into a recipe. The short story was not about Mm. food. So I began being quite playful, thinking about how recipes can be expressive of things, how recipes can be a form of language or articulate things. And then I also gave a paper at an arts college about the tomato sauce recipe that I make over and over again. And I began thinking about cooking as a form of performance and how maybe if we bring in forms of thinking from other fields like art and performance practices, 
how can that open our eyes even wider to what cooking is and what it's about? And so all of these different influences went into making this book. And, you know, 15 years of moving house lots of times and cooking with different people. And it's really a book also reflects on the role that cooking played in my life and how I used that to navigate relationships with other people. So there's lots of other people in the book as well in terms of who I'm cooking for. Mm -hmm. It's not a straightforward genesis. It was really hard to think about what the book was. To come up with a book proposal was hard and took a while, took a few years. It's a hard book to describe. And that's what makes it so fascinating is that it is unlike any other food book that I've ever read. One thing I want to circle back to, which really influenced me in the reading of it, is you talk about gendered roles in the kitchen. There is a quote that I included in one of my newsletters where you say, cooking is, quote, often not properly viewed as work, as labor. I think of how people and women in particular are often encouraged to prepare food joyfully and instinctively without breaking a sweat or showing signs of fatigue or complaint. And you explain how when we view cooking as love, we take it out of the scope of work and then it cannot be consented to or refused. And this even goes further, as you just alluded to, this performance of joy. Like Mm. we need, I I felt this myself, I've got two kids, that we need to prepare food with love for our families. And this denies us of any sort of agency or complexity. And for me, that also layers on a massive amount of guilt because when I, I feel many emotions (laughs) as any human does, but I feel guilty, you know, in the past, I would feel guilty when I felt all these things bubbling up in the kitchen because we're expected, there's this paradigm expected, you know, we're expected to just like cook food with Mm. love, not breaking a sweat. I just want you to speak to this a little bit because I love how this just kind of broke things open for me. Yeah, it's a really difficult position that people and, you know, usually women, usually mothers get put in where there's lots of different ways in which they're prevented from viewing their own work as work. And Therefore, you know, oh, why am I exhausted? Why am I stressed? Why am I feeling miserable right now? And of course, it's hard work that involves huge amounts of thinking and preparation and years of knowledge and years of interpreting other people. It's an, it's an incredibly complex skill, cooking for people, especially even cooking mm. for specific people. And yeah, I mean, the thinking in the book owes huge amounts to feminist thinkers of all kinds. I mean, I, actually, my master's a long time ago now. 2009 was in women's studies and they encountered all sorts of different feminist thought there. But in particular, in the book, I cite the Italian feminist Silvia Federici and a project she worked on with some other women in the 70s called Wages for Housework. And they began thinking about what's going on with housework. You know, what are these forces Mm. that are concealing it as a form of labor from us? Labor that somehow people don't feel that they can withdraw or change the terms of somehow. And so I feel like with food books, there's so much pressure on people writing food books and writing about food in all sorts of ways, also on blogs, substacks, etc., to, yeah, to be pleasing all the time, to be physically pleasing, to mm-hmm. be joyful, to be yes. modeling, mm-hmm. modeling things, modeling life. And cooking mm-hmm. isn't always... You know, like any other thing that we might be writing about or might be worthy of our focus and intelligence, cooking is not straightforwardly joyful. And I just really wanted to explore that in the book. 
I do also take great joy in cooking. And that's, you know, partly why I've been drawn to it. And that's partly why I wanted to write about it. That is certainly not the limits of it. And, you know, also to write mm. a book, you have to spend lots of time not cooking. You know, when I was trying to finish <laughs> chapters and finish the edit, my partner was bringing me bowls of peanut butter noodles so I could keep working. And if you can somehow find ways of taking that pressure off yourself or finding other ways of doing it, you might be doing other things as well. Caring for yourself, doing yeah. the writing, whatever it is. I don't particularly think the way that society works is set up to be particularly helpful to women. You know, there's a huge freight of structural inequality there in all sorts of ways, which make it very hard to resist these things. But certainly I wanted to make the space for being angry, for being pissed off, for being mm. uninterested mm. in cooking, frankly, if you want to. You know, just because you like doing something, yeah. you don't have to like it every day all the time. I mean, that's not normal. But yeah, it's so much bound up with gender and the idea of certain forms of labor as emanations of love. And it's not work, mm. it's just simply exhaling love, exhaling the perfect meal, as if it's not required years of thought to get to that point. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit, Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. You know, something I've talked about a lot in my work is this idea of perfectionism. And we get caught up, especially within the food world. You know, I've been in the food world for over 20 years. And there is this notion of perfectionism, which food writing myself included. You know, I have a newsletter. My photos are styled. Everything is beautiful. And I try to be very clear that that is not real life. That is just the job. But the real life stuff is what I'm so curious about exploring, which is what you do so well. The book centers loosely around a red sauce recipe, which comes from Ruth Rogers via Marcella Hazen. And you say that this recipe is your epic. And I just want you to describe what that means to you. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I did this PhD about the Odyssey. And that's a journey that takes place over 10 years. And in this journey, Odysseus travels around, meets lots of people. These people teach him things about life, about being a human. He survives lots of different difficulties, and then he gets home at the end. And this story is often taken of huge philosophical importance, of metaphorical importance, of teaching us kind of deep things about the human condition. You know, it's been huge amounts of uh, mm. energy has been devoted to its study. I wanted to think about elevating the domestic to a level of epic in the sense that very often people, often women, are minimizing what they do in the kitchen when they describe their own work. I do it. My mum does it. All sorts of people I've encountered mm -hmm. do it. Oh, I just made this. I just followed a recipe. 
I, you know, whatever, or it doesn't even get spoken about half the time. But then I wanted to think about over a 10 year period, which is the period of time which I document making this recipe, roughly 10 years, all of the encounters that happen when this recipe is being made with other people, all of the different people who've sat across the table, all of the ways that I've learned about being a person through making this recipe for all these different people, what they've taught me about myself, what I didn't know, what I found out about the world through these other people, what I found out about cooking and how to kind of work with and transform ingredients and objects. And so I wanted to, you know, if we really wrote down and documented every time we made a recipe over a long period of time, the period of time of a classic epic, the sort of archetypal epic, the Odyssey, what might we realize that we've learned? What kind of scale could we begin to think about cooking on as a form of knowledge, as a form of thinking, as a way of engaging with others? And also that has relevance and teaches us lessons far beyond the context of the kitchen that has... Yeah huge amounts of significance. So yeah, in a way, I wanted to be slightly provocative by calling it an epic, a tomato sauce epic, putting it on a scale alongside the Odyssey, you know, why not? And I, yeah, I believe in, in that. Yeah. I believe in that as well. I mean, cooking for me is, you even mentioned this, cooking is like the ship. <laughs> cooking for me personally, it's the connector for me to do not only internal investigating and to discover my own body and discover my own pleasure and my own desires, but also that ship that connects me to those who I'm at the table with, whether I'm feeding them or they're cooking for me. How does cooking connect you to, for you personally, how have you learned about yourself through the act of cooking this recipe and others? So I grew up in a house in the middle of nowhere in the countryside with no neighbors at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, Sure, I saw other people. I went to high school and all that kind of thing. But really living around with other people was something that happened to me later. It wasn't like I could just drop into someone's house who was my next door neighbor. There was no next door neighbor. So when you cook for people who you live with, new people, housemates, etc., as a student or when you're moving around, you learn about difference. You learn about... Mm you know, the different histories and difficulties and joys that other people come to the table with. I don't think I'd ever met, really met a vegetarian until I went to university (laughs) or even anyone who drank herbal tea, actually. (laughs) So, you know, realizing that what I thought was the best way to make something or the best dish to eat at a certain time wasn't always what was the best for someone else. Dealing with other people's refusals of dishes or disinterests, or maybe that certain foods are difficult for people in the way they're not difficult for me is quite a decentering experience, or it can be quite a decentering experience mm-hmm. cooking if you're really listening to those that you're cooking for. And, you know, people go through difficulties at all times of life. I mean, in your 20s in particular, for many people living away from home for the first time, having kind of relationships, romantic relationships, everyone's kind of going through stuff. Often food can be a site of difficulty and vulnerability for people. And Mm. I guess I, because cooking was my primary mode of socializing often, that's how I found out about, you know, the world that's not me and other people and difference. And, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. For me too, when I went to 
university here, we call it college. You know, as I had mentioned, I grew up in the Midwest and I had never tried sushi. There were so many foods that I had never been exposed to. And that was absolutely the start of this passion. I mean, I had always had this passion around food growing up, but that unlocked something in me. And it was about learning something outside myself. And I'd say much of my 20s was about that that decentering. And in my 30s and now 40s, it's the lens has shifted. And now I think I'm actually looking much more inward than outward and prioritizing my desires and my sense of self, which I denied, quite mm-hmm. honestly, in my early 20s. Have you found that for yourself? Have you discovered anything about yourself, perhaps surprising or not, through this journey of cooking? Yeah, hugely. Especially, I think, the thing of not cooking sometimes. I think mm-hmm. I thought a sort of manic desire to sort of solve all problems by cooking for people. And yeah. accepting that sometimes I'm not able to cook or I don't want to cook. I get periods of like chronic fatigue type thing, you know, a couple of times a year where I have to like basically lie around and I can't really do very much. Yeah. And accepting that I'm vulnerable. I think I used to see myself as invulnerable and try mm. to sort of look after everyone else who mm. I lived with and by cooking, always for hours by cooking. And accepting that other people can look after me sometimes or can do things for themselves and I don't have to solve other people's problems by cooking. And that also, I mean, my partner Sam always has a really useful thing he says, which is, you know, you can't solve other people's problems. You just need to be their friend. And I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a simple thing, but I found that very useful. And friends, I write about it in the book towards the end, a friend who said, yeah, the food's nice and everything, but honestly, I'd be happy with just eating chips, which is French fries to us, around the table and just hanging out. And like, this kind of, you know, performance and trying to meet everyone's, you know, desires by food and you know, it's okay. Sometimes it's enough just to be yourself. And um, it took me a long time to get to that point. That sentence, I was like, oh yeah, because it took me until the pandemic. We used to entertain all the time and it got to the point where I was, I was hating it. And, you know, I cook for a living, I've got kids and I would put all this pressure on myself, that performance element of having people over and God's like, what if it's not delicious? Like, this is what I do, you know? Mm. And it wasn't until the pandemic and we stopped and it was like a huge sigh of relief. And I remember having a conversation with two of my best friends and I felt so much shame, but I was like, I just don't have it in me to Mm. cook for people anymore. And they were like, we don't care. (laughs) They were like, we just want to hang out. And we just started Mm. doing takeout instead of me cooking. And it shifted everything. I was like, Mm. wait, all of that pressure was coming from me. It wasn't Mm. coming from anybody else. That's very moving. And exactly, it does come from us, but it also comes from norms and expectations that are out there in the atmosphere, in the culture Mm. and inherited. Mm. Well, for me, my mom, who always cooks and I sometimes wish my dad would learn. So could take this heat <laughs> off her sometimes. I'm very fortunate mm-hmm. that my partner's mm-hmm. also a great cook and we take it in turns. And sometimes it's fine. We order takeout and it's also fine and it's not incompetent or whatever. <laughs> exactly. It's quite shocking and overwhelming. Like when your friend said, we don't care. We just, you know, they just wanted to spend time with you. 
I mean, that's also quite hard to get your head around that kind of thing, actually. It's quite overwhelming. Can feel overwhelming. It is. Yeah, yeah. Well, particularly as you had mentioned, like I had defined myself as the one cooking, taking care of, you know, the other. And then there is that sense of vulnerability of saying, wait, I'm not taking care of myself mm. in these decisions. And sometimes the best way I can take care of myself is to order a pizza mm. or to tell somebody else to, you know, make something. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. I think a lot of the reason we don't do that is because of those cultural norms that we all feel. Yeah, exactly. In a recent interview with Edward S.P. Brown, who wrote one of my other favorite books about food. That's also not a cookbook, but it's a book about food. But he talks about the importance of finding your own way in the kitchen, of discovering, he calls it your aesthetic, and that is your style. But that also, he talks about finding your own desire and your own pleasure. This is really two questions. How do you tap into that pleasure element? I feel like pleasure is so powerful, and I've talked about that before. How do you tap into that for yourself? And then also, do you have an aesthetic? What is your aesthetic when it comes to cooking? It's very hard when you're cooking just for yourself to find what you want to eat. I often, well, when I realize most acutely when I'm just cooking for myself, how hard it is. And I often feel like a complete loss to know what to cook if there's no one else there to cook for, mm. which makes me realize how much desire is mediated through other people. And mm. I do think it's quite radical in Nigella Lawson's recent book. She has several dishes, which are, it's like chocolate cookie for one person recipe. And I think she has maybe a creme brulee for one as well, or a creme caramel for one anyway, because most dishes aren't really for one. <laughs> yeah. So I think locating your own desire is very hard. And more often it's kind of in concert with others or with the notion that there are mm. others to cook for. But... Yeah, I mean, I'm just writing a blog post this afternoon about a soup I made last week, which was, I mean, honestly, I was on TikTok and one of Stanley Tucci's videos came up and it was quite a funny mm -hmm. video, really. It was very low key. It's almost like he couldn't be bothered to do it. It's very casual and not particularly like aesthetic in its presentation. It was like, hey, mm -hmm. I've got some soup here. Anyway, it was a soup which was basically lots of vegetables cooked in water with no frying at all or any kind of sofrito or whatever, cooked in just mm -hmm. in water and then served with a bit of olive oil and bread. And I suddenly felt a sort of overwhelming desire to eat this, like it absolutely had to have this dish. And I, I have an allotment where I grow some zucchini, which is in his recipe, and I, I made it the same day with some additional ingredients that a friend brought around because I actually didn't have everything. So I guess that was really, I saw something, I desired it, I cooked it. But aesthetics, hmm, I'm probably influenced, what am I influenced by? I guess quite European-oriented sort of relaxed style of cooking. I also grew up, you know, in the wake of my mother reading like Elizabeth David, the kind of restaurants. I like food that's fairly simply presented, but, you know, lots of care has been uh, paid to vegetables. I love vegetables a lot. I have an, I grow artichokes, zucchini, tomatoes. Tomatoes are a big passion. My father grows tomatoes. I like growing them. But sometimes it feels like, I don't know, it's just like different notes. Food has a real poetics to it where you think about different kind of yeah. sensations or shapes or 
it's very hard to really express in language necessarily because it is a language that kind of comes from the ingredients themselves, how you sort of feel something might go together when you're playing around, like mm. sharpness or flatness or smoothness or, or something. I'm not particularly a planner when it comes to cooking. You know, I tend to be fairly responsive and, re and reactive to what I encounter wherever that may be, whether that be something or, or on Stanley Tucci's TikTok. That's uh, amazing. It's a really good recipe, actually. <laughs> well, when you approach cooking from that way, it reminds me of your book because when you can be reactive and not be maybe so tethered to the recipe. I mean, I love actually in the book how you don't throw away the recipe. You say the recipe actually is this beautiful hug. It's like a container that allows us to get creative and to have more freedom or self-expression. The recipe doesn't have to deny us those things. And it depends on how we approach it. And it sounds like that's exactly how you approach this soup. It's like, you were given this structure, but then you played with it and kind of made it your own. Yeah, exactly. And that's the great thing about recipes. It's like when you learn to use a language, you can then speak with that language. Well, you know, when you learn a sentence mm. structure or something, if you're learning in a foreign language. But yeah, I do find there's a huge amount of tension that people feel with recipes, tension around authorship and whether there's a space for their mm. voice if they're cooking from a recipe. And I it was something I really figured out in the book. Like I didn't know all the answers before I wrote it, but I wanted to mm. investigate people's antagonism with recipes and to make the case for them as sites of self-expression. And that really you can't cook outside the frame of recipes because there's always a fragment of a recipe somewhere that you are engaging with or reinventing or contributing to, you know, the remaking yeah. of. So as you know, because you've read the book, I have the most playful fun with that in a chapter about sausages. And um, I love this yeah. chapter. <laughs> it's quite mad. My editor was very excited when he got that. <laughs> you mentioned, so you the red sauce, the 10 years of making the red sauce mm. thousands of times. In the book, you also describe this rice pudding that has had me like absolutely. In fact, I wrote a recipe for a rice pudding ah. because you inspired me because you gave oh. me that desire. Are there any other specific dishes that you found you've been playing with lately? I've been unwell the last couple of weeks and I haven't done that much cooking. I'm just coming out of a little period of fatigue, which is very tedious. I made a new recipe the other day, which I'm going to play with and I'm already anticipating playing with, which was a recipe for a French style blueberry custard tart. I mm. suddenly had a yearning. Well, actually, when I went to America in April, I had a slice of blueberry pie in a diner, which is very nice, mm -hmm. a la mode with ice cream. And I'm fascinated by American pies and the use of soft fruits in them and things, which we don't really do so much in the UK in that way. Anyway, I've been thinking about blueberry pie for a long time. I actually need to buy some American style pie cases, whatever metal things, so that I can actually really go for it. I bought a book of pies when I was in the US and I need to, anyway, I need to use it. So I was Googling blueberry custard tart and also in French, I Googled tarteau myrti because I wanted to have sort of maybe a French style. Anyway, one came up, which was, what's he called? Oh God. Actually, he's a British food TV chef whose name, Rick. Oh Christ. I can't believe I can't remember his name. He's so famous in the UK. 
Anyway, his name is Rick. I can't remember his second name. So I made the pastry. It was a sweet pastry with an egg and a bit of sugar in it. And then, so in the last few years, the main type of pastry fruit thing I've been making is a galette from the Chez Panisse fruit book. It is such a good recipe. It's apricot galette. There's an apricot tree on my allotment. And the galette method, Mm. the galette principle, first I made it with apricots, then I made it with plums, and I made it with gooseberries. I don't know if you have gooseberries in the US. They're a very tart berry. Very hard to find. Yeah, I grow them as well. Anyway, but I wanted to try something different. I wanted a custard tart. Anyway, so I made this. Yeah, so it's a sweet pastry, and then you, you line the tart case, and then you chill it twice and then you blind bake it and then you add in ground almonds and blueberries and then you bake that for five minutes Mm. or six minutes and then you add in the custard which is double cream so I think that's heavy cream eggs sugar and vanilla and then bake it again anyway that was really good really worked so well and I'm really excited about making it with raspberries as well next but yeah oh yum I'm going to have to ask you to find us that link because I think everyone listening is going to need to make this recipe. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, I want to say thank you so much for your time and for sharing this wisdom with us, sharing your perspective on food, which is really unlike any other. And I think is so poetic and so beautiful and so liberating in a lot of ways. Where can people find you if they want to check out your work? Well, several places. I'm on Instagram as Rebecca May Johnson. I don't tweet very much, but I am on Twitter with my name as well. And I have a sub stack, which is called Dinner Document by Rebecca May Johnson. And that's sort of a mixture of writings and sometimes recipes. And also I'm an editor at the food publication called Vittles, which is on Substack. And I mean, I'm editing there, so you won't be reading my work so much, but we publish all sorts of writers it's, I would argue, the, probably the most varied range of writing on food you can read, certainly from a UK publication. And it's really great. But yeah, and th- thanks for having me and for your questions and for sharing uh, your engagement with the book, which is so thoughtful and really moving. Well, I have one last question. And this is the, also the question I ask every one of my guests. And it's a fun one. It's your last meal on earth. What would it be? Wow, that's such a whole question. Something I ate yesterday, I suppose, which I really love, which is very distinctly mm. British, and it is fish and chips. You could mm. ask me on another day, it would be something else, but... Yes. And the place where I live, they cook it in beef dripping, which is quite amazing, oh. the chip, chips cooked in beef Yum. dripping, and the fish cooked in beef oh. dripping. And the combination of the freshly fried food with smell of vinegar and salt... And everything is really intoxicating. I absolutely love it. So probably that. And it's very hearty, so it's a good final meal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't have access to good fish and chips here, but this is why I love cooking because this is now something I can go explore in my own kitchen. Oh, yes. Thank you. (laughs) And it has to come with mushy peas as well. Oh, got it. Okay. Mushy peas are actually made with dried marrow fat peas. So it's more like a starchy kind of pea. And then it's cooked right down till it gets really sort of stodgy and starchy. And then I think they dye it green in the chip shops. But anyway, but it has a sort of, it's this very starchy kind of thing. (laughs) I'm fascinated. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Huge thanks for having me. I had a great time. 
Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, and by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore, and as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.